Father, we pray that again as we come to your word, Lord, that you would instruct us, Lord, and change us and just do what you want to do by the power of your spirit through your word tonight in our lives. And may you be glorified in our midst. I pray that you give, um, give us clarity, Lord, and uh, insight tonight. And uh, we ask that your will be done. Amen. Okay. So we're going through our series on the history of the Holy Spirit and the life of a believer. And what we've been trying to do is we've been trying to go chronologically through the Bible, starting with the book of Genesis. And we've been trying to see how the role of the ministry of the Holy Spirit to a believer has changed through the course of history. And when we looked in our Old Testament, uh, we predominantly saw that the, the um, presence of God who was initially obviously with Adam and Eve in the garden, the presence of God uh, departed from them. And the presence of God uh, was then returned. It was sporadically come, but it predominantly returned in, in the book of Exodus. And there Moses is, is tending his sheep in the wilderness, and the burning bush comes. And there is the presence of God uh, manifesting in that place. And really the whole of the book of Exodus is about the presence of God. And it's about how the presence of God goes from turning up here and there, like in the burning bush, like in the, the, uh, when they went to the Red Sea, holding back the, the armies of Pharaoh, uh, to the point at the end of the book where the presence of God is given a permanent, or a permanent from their perspective dwelling place as opposed to temporarily turning up this dwelling place in the tabernacle and the book of Exodus ends with a tabernacle being completed and whoosh the presence of God just filling the place and and the wind the wind coming in wind being the same word in Hebrew as the word for spirit and and coming in and then being unable to do anything because of the presence of God there and then when they go through the wilderness, eventually as they come and settle in the land, the, uh, David wants God to have a temple. He, because of his sin, can't do it. His son Solomon does it. And in 1 Kings chapter 6 through 8, we have the temple being completed. And at the end of the completion of the temple, the same thing happens. So this whoosh, the presence of God comes in, indicating that God is now there. And throughout the Old Testament, God was with his people because by his spirit and by his presence, he dwelt in the temple and in the tabernacle. In addition to that, occasionally, the spirit of God would come upon someone. And those people were very rare individuals. They were either leaders, kings, judges, that kind of thing, or they were prophets. And when they came upon some, when the Spirit came upon one of these people, the Spirit distinguished that person from all the other people because the other people didn't have the Spirit. The Spirit was with them but not upon them or in them. But he came upon and distinguished them and he empowered them. And typically he empowered them with the gift of prophecy, enabling them to speak on behalf of God. That's how it worked in the Old Testament. We've now come in our studies to the Gospels. And we've seen in the Gospels how predominantly we are under the, exactly the same system. That the Spirit of God comes upon someone and what have you. Because we're still under Old Covenant living. The New Covenant doesn't begin until the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And we're starting to see the promises that were, we, we studied in the Old Testament of what would change starting to be said by Jesus would come about. And we've now come to John 7. We're going to finish the Gospels tonight. And let's go back to John 7. We were here last week, but just to recap. At the end of John 7, verse uh, 37... On the last day of the feast, that's the Feast of Tabernacles, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now this is a continuation, a development of what he said to the Samaritan woman, as we saw last time in chapter 4. And uh, he said that you know, he could give her water and she would never thirst again. And he says, if anyone thirsts, again the same word, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, we rushed this a little bit last time because we were finishing up. Now, this is where a lot will depend on what English version you're reading. Some English versions have worded it and punctuated it more to the point to say that, to quote this in the, in the way that, out of the heart of the Messiah will flow rivers of living water, whereas other versions have translated it to mean out of the heart of the one who believes in the Messiah will flow rivers of living water. I don't think it matters too much because I think both are true. And it is this transference that is going to be really central to our study tonight. The transference of Jesus, who as we saw last time, is now the tabernacle. He came um, the word became flesh and literally he tabernacled amongst us. Jesus is now the one in whom the presence of God dwells. And that's why then in the next chapter, chapter 2 of John, he says to the, uh, to the religious leaders, if you destroy this temple, he doesn't say if, he, he commands them, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And he was talking of his body. He is now the tabernacle, he is now a temple. But we're going to see this transference where the one from whom the rivers of living water flow, the Messiah, will come to us, that water, we will drink it, we will thirst no more, then a well will spring up in us, and we will be the ones who are temples, and we will be the ones who are the, the ones who give living water. And again, just to finish up where we ended last time, verse 39, he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, uh, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So the Spirit of God, represented by water, is going to come to these people, but not yet. It can't happen yet because Jesus has not been glorified. And in John's Gospel, that refers to his death. Now let's go to chapter 14. That's really where we're going to pick up tonight. One other little thing while you're turning there, just as an interest from John 7 and, and that whole imagery, as well as obviously the Exodus uh, connotation of the rock being struck and the water coming forth from the rock. In addition, it's interesting to note that when Ezekiel talks about the, the future millennial temple, that that temple has a river of water flowing out from the midst of it. And again, that's a nice imagery and very similar to what we're seeing here. Now, John 14, we'll, we'll go back earlier into it in a minute, but let's pick up in verse 15. I've had this pick up in four, uh, yeah, 13. No, we'll start in 15. <laughs> 15. Otherwise, I'll get distracted. Um, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. 
And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, another advocate, paraclete, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor, know, nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now this is crucial. This whole section really from the end of chapter 13 and on is Jesus preparing the disciples for what is going to happen to them on earth when he goes back to heaven. So the one who came down from heaven is going to return and he's now explaining to them what's going to happen in this section. Um, it's interesting, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and then I will ask the Father. Most English versions leave out the then there. It's there in the Greek. And it's interesting to me, we, we're uncomfortable with it, because it seems to apply, Im imply, if you obey, then you'll get the Holy Spirit. Which we're uncomfortable with, because we understand salvation by, by faith, by grace, not by works. So we, we kind of struggle with that, but that's what it says. And there's two reasons for that. Firstly, I think that when we understand what it means to, to, to love God, uh, then we understand that that is synonymous with believing. The idea that we can believe in Jesus but not really love him is not a concept that is, the New Testament is familiar with. And to some degree, our loving of Christ is going to mean trying to follow him and try and keep his commandments. None of us are going to do it perfectly until we see him face to face. But that's got to be part of what makes us Christians, practically. But I think the main thing here is there is a parallel with 1 Kings chapter 6 through 8, where we have the first temple set up. And don't bother turning there, I'll just read it to you real quick. But 1 Kings uh, chapter 6 says, if I find the right verse... Um, now the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you are building if you walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them then I will establish my word with you which I spoke to David your father and I will dwell among the children of Israel and not forsake my people Israel so in other words he's saying to Solomon if you keep my laws if you love me if you stay with me then I'm going to send I'm going to basically come and dwell with you. And when that temple was built two chapters later the presence of God comes into the temple and he does dwell with them. He does dwell with them. Now, the parallels there if you're familiar with 1 Kings which I know most people aren't. The parallels are really quite striking. Basically, Solomon is told, you keep my laws and I will come and I will dwell with you and I won't forsake you. Right? That's the promise. So the temple is built, the presence of God comes into the temple and now God is with his people. Right? But when the Babylonians came in and they destroyed the temple, the presence of God wasn't there. As we saw in our studies earlier from Ezekiel, the Spirit of God already left. Why had the Spirit of God left? Why had he forsaken them? Because Solomon hadn't kept the commandments. You see, that was how the old covenant worked. Now here in John 14, we have an almost direct parallel to 1 Kings 6. If you love me and keep my commandments, I'm going to send another one. Um, but what was interesting is if we refer back, I just, again, you stay in John, John 14. But in John 7, Jesus specifically said, this... Uh, Nope, maybe it's here. One second. There you go, it is John 14, verse 16. I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper to be with you, how long? Forever. 
And that's the difference in the shift from Old to New Covenant. That's one of the differences. In the Old Covenant, you keep my commands, then you will have my spirit, you'll have my presence, I'll be with you in the temple. Not in you, but with you in the temple. But if you don't keep my commandments, I'll forsake you. Here it's saying, if you love me, then you'll be keeping the commandments anyway. And I'm going to send you my spirit. And when you have my spirit, those who love me will have my spirit. And he will be with you forever. Which is exactly what we've been seeing in our studies in Ephesians. Where it talks about the spirit being given as a seal of us being God's permanently. The guarantee, the deposit, promising that God will complete his work in us. So, if you love me, you keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, he'll give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. I won't get too distracted by that, but listen to this. You know him, for he dwells with you. Now that's exactly, again, parallels with 1 Kings 6. The illusions here are huge. You know, we can see the, the, the passages uh, paralleling here, correlating. In 1 Kings 6, remember, this, he said, I will be with you. And that's how it was throughout the Old Testament. God was with Israel in the tabernacle. God was with Israel because he was in the temple. But he wasn't in them. Now, at the time of Christ, in the Gospels, we're still under Old Covenant. And the Spirit of God is not in the temple. He left and he never returned. But... He says to the disciples, you know the Spirit of God because the Spirit of God is with you. How is the Spirit of God with them? Because he's in the new temple, Jesus Christ destroyed this temple and I rebuilt it in three days. He's in the new temple and therefore the disciples have the Spirit with them in the way that the Old Testament saints previously did. The Spirit of God is in Jesus Christ and therefore they know the Holy Spirit because they've been with Jesus and they've seen how he is, his character, the way he operates, the things he can do. And so they know the Holy Spirit through knowing Jesus Christ. That's how it is. And then he says, but he will be in you. And that's everything we saw in the Old Testament promises that the prophets look forward to. Jeremiah 32, uh, Ezekiel 36 and 37 we looked at. We looked at Joel chapter 2. We looked at these passages, and Isaiah as well. We looked at these passages that were basically saying, the way things have been in the Old Covenant, the way that the Spirit of God has come upon people and been with everybody else generally, that is going to change. And the Spirit of God is going to come to everyone who believes. That's the shift. So right now, he's saying essentially to the disciples, right now he's saying to them, you are in an old covenant relationship whereby the Spirit of God is with you because you have a temple, the temple being, in this case, Christ himself. But there is going to be a shift. And instead of the Spirit of God being with you through a temple, you are going to become the temple and he will be in you. That's the shift in the new covenant. Now, with all of that in mind, and I'll leave the rest of chapter 14 because I'll get distracted, but from our purposes, just go back in chapter 14 to verse 1. When he starts his speech, understanding what we've just seen, I wonder if that will make us look at a very familiar passage in a very different way. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. 
Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, uh, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am, uh, and you know the way, to, the way to where I am going. Okay, rather than getting beyond that, let's just consider this for a minute. This is a very well-known passage. It is most commonly used at funerals. My father's house has many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you, right? So where is Jesus going? He's going to heaven, right? So he's going to heaven and he therefore he's, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And therefore we presume that he's going to prepare a place for us in heaven, which may well be the case. But is that what the passage is saying? What I find interesting is this. Bear with me here for a minute, because I know this will be quite a new idea to some of you. When John uses specific terms, he's, he's creating themes. In John's Gospel, from chapter 1 through to the end, he talks about glory, for example. And John talks about glory in a completely different way to all the other Gospel writers. The glory of God, if you're Matthew, Mark, or Luke, is the Mount of Transfiguration with the glory of Christ being revealed. John was on the Mount of Transfiguration. A central theme of his Gospel is glory, and yet he doesn't mention the Mount of Transfiguration. Why? Because for John, glory is not the Mount of Transfiguration. Glory is the cross. Glory is the revelation of the covenant-keeping nature of God through the obedience of Christ on the cross. That's glory. So John takes these words and he carefully weaves his themes. Whether it's water, we're going to look a bit more at the theme of water that we've already started on and how he weaves that theme. And John is very precise about his language because he's developing connections. When Jesus talks about water in uh, John chapter 4 with the Samaritan woman at the well, you will never thirst again, that's leading on to chapter 7. And it's leading on beyond that. And it probably goes back a little bit to John 2 with the water being turned into wine. But that's another whole issue. And I won't go into that tonight. But there is this theme of water. So John uses his terms carefully. Where in John's Gospel has he previously used the expression, my father's house? One other time. John chapter 2. You have turned my father's house into a marketplace. The turning over the tables in the temple. Now, that's not a coincidence, people. It can't be a coincidence because the two passages are thematically attached. I've already referenced John chapter 2 twice already tonight, or three times, because we've seen how Jesus being the temple, destroy this temple, I rebuild it in three days. Him being the temple is central to what's going on in this whole section. So in chapter 2, John establishes for us that my father's house refers to the temple, right? So let's take that definition... If you bear with me a minute, I know we all think my father's house is heaven, but let's, let's bear with John's definition of it for now. Take it with us into chapter 14 and see how it reads slightly differently. Let your hearts be troubled, believe in God, and believe also in me. In my father's house, so in the temple, let's just say it like that, in the temple, there are many rooms. Well, that was literally true, there were many rooms in the temple. But, if it were not so, I would not have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. So he is going to prepare a place for them in the temple. Now, who is the temple right now? Christ. 
The whole point of John chapter 2 was seeing the transference of the temple from the building to Christ. Now I think yes Jesus went to heaven and yes there is a place for us in heaven. And yes him going to the cross prepared a place for us in heaven. But I think more specifically what Jesus is saying here is somewhat different. Bear this in mind by way of context. Jesus is saying I don't want your hearts to be troubled. And I don't think he's saying to them, I don't want you to be troubled because eventually when you die, you're going to go to heaven. He's actually, everything in these two, three chapters is he's actually saying, when I leave this earth, this is how it's going to be for you on earth without me. So the theme of these chapters is not them dying and going to heaven. The theme of these chapters is them on earth without Jesus. And he's saying, it's better for you that I'm not here with you. It's better for you that I go. Because the advocate, the helper, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit is going to come. And that's better for you. And he kicks this all off by saying, I'm preparing a place in the temple. And I think what that means is, is this imagery of us being in Christ and Christ being in us. And what he's emphasizing here is not some preparation for us in heaven. What he's saying is, there is a place for you in this temple. Which ultimately will be worked out in us being temples as well. It is the going of Christ that facilitates the giving of the Holy Spirit. And it is the giving of the Holy Spirit that makes us in Christ. It's what solidifies this new covenant relationship that we're in. And so I think that what Jesus is doing, rather than so much pointing to heaven, is he's saying, what I'm going to accomplish is the union between you and I. And that union will solidify our place in heaven as well. But I don't think that's the main point of the passage. So, you know, just to, to throw that out to you, to maybe think of that slightly differently. But I do think that Jesus is talking about him and us being united through the giving of the Spirit. Remember, even the disciples who walked and talked and lived and ate with Jesus, they were better off without him physically there because the gift of the Holy Spirit is a better thing than the incarnate God walking beside them in the flesh. Get your head around that. That's the Holy Spirit that we've been given. That's how much of a big deal it is. So he's preparing a place for us in the temple, for us and him to be united, which is really this, one of the central themes we've seen in this whole new covenant. Now we've got a bit more to do, we need to keep moving. So let's go to John chapter 16. And halfway through verse 4, he says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. So there wasn't a need for this preparation because I was with you. But I'm not going to be with you anymore. So now there's a need for you to understand how it's going to be. But now I'm going to him who sent me, that's the Father, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage I go away. To your advantage. Isn't that crazy? For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And, thanks. And, uh, 
and uh, you will see me no longer concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. But I have many things to say to you and you can bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak on his own authority but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Okay. Let's put all of this together. Um, first of all, the, the spirit coming and judging. I think sometimes we miss the point of this passage as well. When we talk about the spirit coming to convict and we say, Oh Lord, we pray that your spirit will convict people of sin. Right? Because the spirit's got to do that. That's it. But that's, the, the context isn't about the spirit doing something separately. The context is the spirit coming to us. The spirit coming to us. So how is a person convicted of sin? Is it the spirit whispering in their ear? Well, I think in this context it's hard to argue that because they don't have the spirit. But we do. And sometimes conviction has to come from us whispering in their ears. And I think it's, it's wrong of us to think of the work of the Holy Spirit here being separate from us. The whole point of this transference from Old to New Covenant is that the Spirit of God has a new dwelling place on earth. It's not the old tabernacle, it's not the old temple, it's not the new temple of Christ, it's the newer temples of us. So when the Spirit convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, that's us, that's us sharing the gospel message. And that's going to be reiterated at the, by the end tonight when we come to the, the last uh, passage we're looking at. But that's a really interesting thing for us to consider. I've heard Christians talk about this passage and praying about this, oh, Spirit, convict them of this. And, spirit, and, and there's a place for that kind of prayer. But we need to remember that the Spirit of God is in the world in us and works through us. You think about what Jesus said to them. He said to them, that the Spirit, you know the Spirit because He is now with you, but He will be in you. Do those around us know the Spirit because He's with them in us? Now there's a convicting thought, is it not? So, that's one thing to bear in mind in this passage. Um, the other thing to note here is He says, I have many other things to say to you, but I, you cannot bear them now. So they haven't had the full revelation they need. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. Whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. In other words, they, won't, they are going to have teaching directly from the Holy Spirit. Now that, is, that fulfills two parts of the prophecies that we've seen in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah um, 32 and elsewhere, we saw about how the new heart would mean that people would not need a teacher because they would, be, they would know themselves. Now, again, we said at the time in context, that doesn't mean that we don't need teaching. It doesn't mean that we know everything. It means we don't need to be taught the gospel. We don't need to be taught the gospel message. But they are clearly, but also I think it's going to be part of the fulfillment of the gift of prophecy. When the Spirit comes, sons and daughters will prophesy. And the prophecy, remember, contextually in the Old Testament, putting aside our church preconceptions, looking at this chronologically as we have been doing in this series, with prophecy is God speaking through people. And these people who are being told this are the apostles and prophets that we spoke about this morning in Ephesians 2.20. These are the apostles and prophets who are being given the gospel message, who are going to go filled with the Spirit, with the Spirit in them, and take that gospel message out to the world. 
And for us, the revealing of the Spirit's message has come to us through the apostles and prophets. This, as we said this morning, is a foundation. The Bible is a foundation that our faith is built upon. And we now deliver that same apostolic message by that same Holy Spirit. And this is all kind of flowing and developing. Now, we've got to keep moving because we've got a few more chapters. But go to John 19. There's a couple of very, very, very interesting things here. We have in John 19 the crucifixion. And we will leave most of the details and pick up right at the end in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, that's a key phrase, everything that needed to be done has been done now. He said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. This is magnificent. Jesus, we've had this theme of water going throughout John's Gospel. I'd like to spend more time on it. There's a nice change in how the theme works in chapter 3, but we'll leave that for now. Chapter 4, Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, I can give you water, living water, and you will never thirst again. In chapter 7, he says, come to me, and living water will flow forth. And now he's on the cross, and he says, I thirst. The one who said, drink from me, and you will never thirst again, he says, I thirst. This isn't just him being physically thirsty. John is making a theological point. Jesus was the temple. The Spirit of God, as we saw, when we saw John chapter 1, the Spirit of God came upon him and remained on him. And though he was fully God, he did what he did through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And now on the cross, with sin upon his shoulders, our sins upon his shoulders, paying the price, he's without the Spirit. There is a, a separation of some sort that God... I think forsaken is not necessarily the right word. The Psalm 22 quotation is expressing how the psalmist felt. But in some way, shape or form, Jesus took upon himself the sin of the world. He was punished for our sin. And that temple, that source of water is now vacant. And he says, I thirst. There is a picture there. The picture is that you drink from this water, Samaritan woman, and you will never be thirsty again. You will never die again. You will live forever because this is eternal life that is given to you. And this one, who is the source of eternal life, through great dramatic irony, he is now one who is, in a sense, spiritually dead. Why? Because the sin that we are freed from to make us spiritually alive is the sin that he now has upon him on the cross. The Samaritan woman thirsted because she was a sinner. And when she was saved, there would be no need for her to thirst again. Jesus was now holding our sins. The punishment for our sin was upon him. And therefore it was appropriate for him to indicate that by saying, I thirst. And so a jar of sour wine stood there. There's an interesting link there. I, I haven't got time tonight. There's an interesting link there to the sour grapes of Jeremiah 32 and the prophecy of the new covenant. 
They put the sour wine on a hyssop branch and uh, they held it to his mouth. Hyssop was the branch that was used to mark the blood on the door frames at the Passover. Hyssop was the plant that was used to do many of the ceremonial uh, sacrifices in the temple. And now, as this final sacrifice is made, as the transference from old to new covenant is made, the hyssop branch is used again. And when he received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And notice a few verses later, verse 34, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. And there's a lot there, and I can't, won't go into it tonight, but just to say this from our perspective of this study, that the one from whom forth living water would flow, this is John indicating to us that Jesus, who said, I will give you living water, he has thirsted, therefore he has no water, but because the work is done and finished, he has now completed what is required, he has fulfilled the old covenant, and the new covenant era has begun, and now water coming forth from him is an indication of that. And that leads us all the way through, finally, to chapter 20. You know this passage well. On the first evening of that day, the first day of the week, verse 19, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came in and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. This is the most profound statement. The Father sent the Son into the world as his representative. He had the Spirit in him and he was the temple. And he went out to people that they might be saved. In the same way, and this is the context of this passage, which is important for the next few verses, in the same way that the Father sent the Son, so we are being sent as temples into the world. We are fulfilling the role of Christ in his absence because his spirit indwells us. That's just amazing to me. As the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So, again, we have, we've seen this in our Old Testament studies. In both Greek and Hebrew, the word for breath and wind and spirit is the same word. Ruach in the Hebrew and pneuma in the Greek. It's the same word. So, here, when he breathes on them, it's symbolic of the spirit. And he says, receive the spirit. In the same way that on his death on the cross, water came from his side, indicating the giving of the spirit. He's now come to reiterate that. And he breathes and says, receive the Holy Spirit. This is the significant thing that John has been tracking throughout his gospel from the beginning. Right from the beginning when he tells us that the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. Right from the beginning when he said that, this, that his body was the temple in chapter 2. Right from the beginning there has been this transition. The spirit is with you but he will be in you. And here now it's coming to fruition where he breathes and says now is the time receive the Holy Spirit. Now whether they actually received the Spirit at that second or whether that was symbolic, we will talk about next time.
But I do want to note the next verses because I think they're misunderstood. When he said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Wow. Now that, that will be a verse that will be a problematic verse to many people. Old Covenant, right? That's all they know. The New Covenant's been going for what? A few days? Okay. So Old Covenant stuff, right? This is how they're thinking. If you are under the Old Covenant and you need to be forgiven, where do you go for forgiveness? To the temple. That's where the sacrifices are made. That's where sin is atoned for. You go to the temple. Christ is now the, has been the temple in their midst, and he has been the ultimate sacrifice, right? Now, who are the temples going to be with the giving of the Holy Spirit? That's going to be us. If somebody wants to be forgiven for their sins, where do they go to? Well, yeah, they go to God, and God forgives them their sins. But where is God in their midst? How is God with people in the world today? Whether we like it or not, and whether we do a good job or not, we are God's temples. We are the dwelling place of God in the world today. And so, if somebody wants to have their sins forgiven, I hope they know to come to us. Because if someone wants to be forgiven, if someone comes to an awareness of sin and needs to be right with God, and they say, I need, I'm going to talk to Anthony. I know he's a Christian. I know he's a part. I'll go talk to Anthony. Then you know what I can do? I can share the gospel with them. I have the power to have their sins forgiven. Not because I will declare them forgiven. Not because I'm God and I forgive. But because the key to them being forgiven. The solution to the problem of their sin. Their redemption. I have the answer. And so do you. And if they hear that gospel message, and if they reject it, then in the same way, I can say well, forgiveness is withheld. Not because I'm withholding forgiveness, but because as Peter famously said in that sermon, there is no other name on heaven and on earth by which man may be saved. You present the gospel, and the way a person responds to that gospel will determine their eternal destiny. Certainly at that moment, at that point. And it is a reminder to us that this transference from old to new covenant comes with it. Not just the most amazing of promises. Not just that this spirit is given so that we would never thirst again. So that we wouldn't need to hear the gospel again. So we wouldn't need to be forgiven again. Not just that this spirit is a seal guaranteeing that God will one day complete his work. He will give us redeemed bodies, that we will be with him and see him face to face, and that the Spirit will be with us forever, both here on this earth and in the new heaven and the new earth. That we will never be separated from that Spirit ever again. It's not only those wonderful promises, it is the realization of responsibility that we become the temples, that the role of Christ on the earth at the time of the Gospels, we now fulfill. That as the Father had sent him, he's now sent us to the world. 
And you see, those of you who've been in the mornings, how this dovetails in with our Ephesian studies. That before the foundation of the world, he chose us that we might be holy and blameless in his sight. And that he saved us by faith, but he saved us for works that he prepared beforehand for us to walk in them. This is our ministry that God has seen from the beginning. And he said, I'm sending you. I've got a job for you. And we are empowered for that job by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, by the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that is why, as I've been saying again and again in the mornings, as I will continue to say in the mornings, and as I will beat to death in the mornings when we hit chapter 4, the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit is the thing that is more than anything else in Scripture the basis of Christian unity. The fact that the doctrine of the Holy Spirit has divided churches over the last century or so is a disgrace. The Holy Spirit unites us because we all have the Holy Spirit equally. It is part of our new covenant promise as believers and it's absolutely central to everything that John's been saying throughout his gospel. It's, everything, it's, it's absolutely central to what the prophets were saying. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Joel were saying about what would happen under the new covenant. It's absolutely central. And we can see here why it's so important. Which then, of course, leaves us with the question, so what on earth did happen in Acts chapter 2? And we've mentioned previously Joel chapter 2, and how Peter in Acts chapter 2 says, you know, he quotes Joel chapter 2, and he says, and this is fulfilled today. He says, this, thus fulfilling this scripture. And yet, everything that Joel spoke about didn't happen in Acts 2, and everything that happened in Acts 2 wasn't spoken about by Joel. And why is it that many churches talk about some people having the Spirit in a different way than other people, and they use the book of Acts to argue that, when nothing that we've seen up to this point would indicate that? Well, if you want those answers, you'll have to come next week. Because next week we'll do the book of Acts as we complete our gospel studies. But again, I want to reiterate as we finish tonight. The benefit of this study, which is a study of biblical theology, is going through the Bible, looking at a single theme, and how that theme weaves itself and develops and expands and changes at places through the Bible. The benefit of this study is to go through chronologically, see how things develop, and not do what most people do, which is take your theology from your, at whatever church you were raised in and read it back into the Old Testament and put it in there. Let's let the scriptures instruct us by going through the story, going through the journey together and seeing where it will lead us. Right now, it's taking us to the brink of the book of Acts and that's where we'll be next time. Let's pray. Father, we... Uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the richness of your word, the depth of your word. And Lord, we thank you for your spirit. Lord, if there was ever a doctrine more misrepresented, more, more abused, more undervalued, it's the doctrine of your Holy Spirit. What the Old Testament saints longed for what the prophets prophesied would come about. What even the disciples at the time of Christ didn't have and were told would be better than having Christ standing with them. That is our gift. Our seal. Our deposit. 
Aaron Abelman. Lord, may we never, never neglect this gift. May we not forget about it. May we recognize that the third person of the Trinity, he indwells us in all his deity, in all his power, that we might serve you unto your glory. May it be so in our lives, we pray. Amen.